Thanks for funding Organic Matters once again. For this portion of the show, we'll talk about something that if you've been listening to me for years, you know I really support. Changing our light bulb to LEDs, uh, changing uh, other what we call high-use appliances when you change them to five-star rated appliances. It all saves a little, but it adds up to a lot. So my next question is, should you ask someone to turn off their lights? And in some situations, it depends. Switching out a light barely registers in terms of overall household energy consumption, but there's still reasons to do it. Way back when I was young, of course, my mom would, I want to use the word, berate me if I left the lights on. Now, remember back then, everything was tungsten, so they did use five times the electricity they do now. That's understandable, really. She, my mother, cared about saving energy. First, we weren't the richest people on earth. It really cost us. And as we got older and she got to know me and I got to, I, she got concerned about climate, mostly through me. And during the days of the incandescent light bulb, when the light really had a significant driver of household energy consumption, it really counted. I do admit in, in later years, she had sort of a dedication to my radio shows and my writings in the newspaper, in which I kind of lightheartedly even berated my, my girl, my, my child, when she happened to leave the lights on. So sort of here's my take. Though LED lighting technology has developed so fast and so far that it means switching off a light barely registers in terms of overall household energy consumption, uh, it's why... I've kind of now come around to the thought that windows should now be about well-being and beauty, not saving energy through daylighting. The LED is just so efficient now. Of course, all things being equal, it still makes sense to turn off a light when you leave the room. In fact, leaving anything on when we aren't using it is not best practice these days. As with so many things in the world of what I call green living, we need to be able to differentiate between the action itself and whether it is worth our time, energy, and the social capital to talk to others about also taking that action. And this is really true for individuals, and it holds true for movements also. In fact, this is one of the reasons that that myself, as what I call a climate activist, uh, are kind of turned off a little bit about what we call Earth Hour, the event in which communities all around the world are asked to switch off their lights for the sake of the climate. And here's my take on, uh, on this in another direction. It is essential to note energy consumption isn't really the only variable to do with turning off your lights. We also need to be very mindful of the impact of light pollution on our environment. As such, the importance of switching off the lights varies by region. On the coast, for instance, and I've been deeply involved in this, requests to turn off lights are often focused on helping sea turtle hatchlings to navigate their way back to the water. Another example at night, migrating birds use the stars to navigate and the bright artificial lights throw them off of their routes many times. A little factoid I should enter into this conversation. An estimated 365 to over 988 million birds, millions now, are killed annually by building collisions in the United States. And that's according to the National Audubon Society. For every collision victim bird found, three or four typically aren't discovered. So it's probably a bigger number than we think. 
They either fly somewhere out of sight before they fall or are taken by predators so we don't see the body. Birds are often drawn into a city by the very lights that are on at night. I might add here that it actually, the whole concept stretches well beyond just light bulbs. For instance, I'm a big bike rider, okay? Riding a bike is good. Saves energy, good for you, win, win, win. But yelling at people for driving cars is kind of a waste of time, folks. That's not going to happen. Especially in places where riding a bike's dangerous, and I've been there. I'm a casual, and maybe more than casual, meat eater. Eating less meat is beneficial. But we I've had more luck. I want to use the word professing or celebrating what we call flexitarianism. Other words, the best of both worlds. Rather than berating people for the steaks they're eating. That's just not going to work. Encouraging greener travel may be more a case of celebrating the experience of going slow rather than shaming those who happen to travel fast at 80 miles an hour. It's, it's, yeah, you're not going to get a return on it. This is, of course, a topic I've covered before. Yet in an age where both politicians and corporations would love to focus our attention on pointing fingers at each other, and that's really happening in our environment these days, more so than ever, it's always worth remembering that unsolicited advice on green living, sustainability, or any other buzzwords of life environmentalism comes at a cost. I've, I've done it. I'm very guilty of doing it, and sometimes I need to learn to keep my mouth shut. I really do. Every time... We talk to each other about our little small habits, especially if the person we're addressing has not indicated they're interested in your opinion. I'm bad bad at this. We erode our ability to get them on board when their buy-in really could matter. So if you find yourself on the verge of offering some, I call it, eco-advice to a friend, family members or even acquaintances, I suggest... Playing it through your head first. And I cannot blame anybody more than me for this. So I, I, I deserve the criticism that I more than occasionally get. So here's an approach I found that at least is helping me, helping me work this out, is what I'm advocating at that moment for a genuinely meaningful change. Is, is it really matter? Has the person I'm addressing or talking to asked for my advice or expressed an interest in the topic at all? Not always. What's my relationship with that person? Do I have their trust and the respect? Do they regularly seek my counsel? I'm really bad at that. How likely are they to actually change based on what I have to offer? Good question, folks. Would I be better placed spending my time and energy recruiting them into a collective organized action rather than on a micro level, one-on-one individual exchange? How much good does that really do? Is there a way for me to reframe the conversation? Uh, For example, when it comes to turning off lights, educating people about light pollution and its impact on animals can be more enlightening than just tell them they're wasting electricity. I do realize, I am this aware, folks, there are no hard and fast rules on this. And there's absolutely no absolutes. I, for example, do try to teach my kids and, and, and their friends to turn out the lights just as I teach them to brush their teeth or clean their room. But I don't tend to tell my adult friends and family to do the same, even if they really could use the advice. We live in a culture that loves to reduce complex system-level challenges into what I call more of an individualistic narrative about willpower and personal morality. 
and we only have so many hours in a day, and I'm bad on this one too. I like to be uh, critical of myself. So while it's important to be recreating new climate-friendly social norms, we also have to keep our gunpowder dry, folks. That means saving our advice, our recommendations, and our calls to action, especially when unsolicited, talking to myself here, for when our opinion might really matter. So that's part of this portion of Organic Matters for this week. I'm going to talk about something that I've been involved in for over, let's see, 50 years, almost 60. So much has happened, it's, it's certainly going to be hard to throw it into a three or four minute talk, but at least you'll get the point. And it, it has to do with the implications of global warming for sea turtle management and survival. And why am I involved in that? Because I've been involved in that since I was a teenager. And so many things have come to light that I don't think many people know about that I want to I want to talk about it for a minute. And, and it may surprise you if you're not really into the study of wildlife. This is the beginning that's very interesting. The sex of sea turtles is temperature dependent. Listen to that. Temperature dependent, with more females born in hot temperatures and males at lower temperatures. Increasingly, global temperatures has an important implication for sea turtle management and survival. And here's a part of the factoid that didn't exist, that we didn't know it, and if I'd have said it in my biology class in college 40 years ago, they'd have thought I was nuts. Sea turtles and most crocodilian species differ from other reptiles and vertebrates by the nature of their temperature-dependent sex determination. This means that the sex of sea turtles is not dependent on sex chromosomes, as we were all taught in our my years of college. Instead, it's actually determined by the temperature at which the eggs develop. We now know that eggs incubated below a temperature of approximately 82 degrees produce males, while eggs incubated at temperatures of roughly 89 degrees produce females. In instances where nest fluctuates between the upper and lower limits, which it used to always do, a fair amount of mix of males and females obviously is produced. The warmer the upper limit, the greater the female-to-male ratio, while the lower limit skews the ratio towards more males. Unlike sea turtles and crocodilians, oh, and now we're finding out some birds, that's a story for another show, sex chromosomes are passed from parents to their offspring at the time the egg is fertilized, at conception. In the simplest term, there are two types of sex chromosomes, and we always talk about them, X and Y. In in what I call eighth grade uh, science, and that's about all I, I, it's always easier to, to go there. Girls are always double X's. Guys are X's and Y's. And when they get together in the normal situation, you have about a 50-50 chance of having males and female offspring born to anything that has an active set of sex chromosomes. However, as I'd mentioned before, that doesn't work for crocodilians, sea turtles, and now we found out certain birds. Again, I promise I'll go into those birds on a, when I have more time. So what's happening is... In, in what I call layman's terms, folks, the world's getting hotter. And as that happens, these animals that unfortunately don't have sex chromosomes but are actually determined by the environment, the temperature around them, are getting out of uh, phase. In the case of loggerhead sea turtle, which is probably the most prominent turtle coming into Florida, which is where this study was uh, begun, although it's all over the country now, 
as it approaches that 89 degree point that we're talking about each year, instead of the fluctuation that's been on Earth sometimes for millions of years, we get more and more females and less and less males. And there may become a point when the average temperature of the nest everywhere is at or exceeds that temperature. And when it does, there's not going to be any more guys. What's that going to do to the population? It's going to wipe it out, folks. It's going to plummet. How do we fix it? Well, we can help them by literally picking up the eggs and and hatching these eggs in a controlled environment where we know what the temperatures of those eggs are. But is that really a concept we can do on a worldwide basis? I don't know if I have that answer yet. The real answer is we got to get control of our climate change, and we're not doing that. Now, next week, I'm going to talk about the summit. There's a big, big worldwide summit that's actually going to be on in a couple days. I'll go into it probably for the whole next show next week. But in the meantime, what started this whole little thing about turtles is, directly or indirectly, when you think about it, turning off that one light bulb times millions and millions and millions of us may make all the difference for at least this species. Thanks for staying tuned to Organic Matters.